Welcome to Screens of the Stone Age, the podcast where scientists review movies about prehistoric people. My name is Josh Lindell. I'm a grad student studying Neanderthal teeth, and I'm here with... Dr. Kim Plomp. Oh my god, that was a brain freeze, sorry. Um, I study the human skeleton, um, evolution, and health and disease. If you don't redo it, I can't edit that part out. <laughs> okay. I'm Dr. <laughs> you can't, well, every time I say I'm going to read, I'm going to edit something out, I leave it in. So I don't know. We're just going to have a really long intro this time. <laughs> <sighs> okay. I'm Dr. Kimberly Plomp. I'm a bioarchaeologist. I study the human skeleton, health and disease, and evolution. There we go. I know who I am. <laughs> and uh, Ross is away today, uh, but in his place, we have two special guests. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Hales-Britton. I work in scholarly publishing now, but in my previous life, I was a classicist studying uh, the ancient Greek novels. And I'm Sam Siegel, and I work in sexual violence prevention in Arkansas. Oh, wow. And uh, I've invited you here today because you also host a podcast with a kind of similar theme to our own. Yeah, so uh, we host, along with uh, our, our third co-host, uh, Luke Patrick, uh, Greased Lightning, a podcast about myths, uh, ancient history, and the movies. Cool. So on that podcast, you pair uh, an ancient Greek myth with a movie, either about it or related to it, right? Yeah, That's right, yes. yeah. Yeah, some some of the relationships are closer than others, uh, but <laughs> the the <laughs> Sam and Luke have been very generous to just sort of let me have fun with pairing up myths and movies for some of those. <laughs> very cool. It's a cool idea. Uh, well, that's what we're doing here because this is a podcast about Stone Age movies, and uh, you've selected for us the TV miniseries Attila from two thousand and one, <laughs> which has nothing to do with the Stone Age. Um, <laughs> I'll let you know what our baseline is on this one. In a previous episode, we definitely had a conversation where we had to clarify that Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan were different people. <laughs> so <Okay. laughs> uh, I I didn't even take notes for this one because it's like, I have no idea what's real and what's fiction in this one. I don't have any idea what to say. So I'm really counting on you guys to, yeah. to tell us where this one goes uh, astray from history. Well, I don't know if this is going to make you feel better or worse, but all of our sources for this, uh, for Attila, are very fragmentary, so we don't fully know what's going on either. <laughs> well, uh, can I ask the two of you to summarize this two-part TV miniseries for us? Sure, yeah. So so I'll take episode one. So I, I want to kind of set the scene. Uh, you, you boot up stars, which if you're like me, you've you've been paying for for like three years and have used maybe twice. And it comes up with a set of like content warnings. And one of them is new to you. And it is insensitive cultural depiction, uh, which <laughs> really sets a tone. Yeah. And then let's see. So, so we open on uh, a young boy, Attila and his sort of like village, like kind of tribal setting. Uh, is raided by other Huns after uh, his father goes into some other lands on a hunt. So his parents are killed. He's taken in by his uncle and he trains with his uncle a bit. And then he grows up into the obviously very Hunnic Gerard Butler, uh, <laughs> who uh, has quite the mane of hair. And there's a a bit of like a brewing power struggle with his brother Bleda, who is the the older brother, and so he's set to to inherit things from their uncle. And during this, he comes into contact with uh, Roman general uh, Flavius Flavius Flavius. I've already I've biffed it, um, Adius, and uh, they basically they kind of work together and. We we get this background of of Adius being like in the doghouse back in Rome. He gets released from prison due to uh, his knowledge of of the Huns, and he he's got this power struggle with the uh, emperor's mom, who kind of seems to be in charge of things, and but she sort of begrudgingly lets him out of prison so that he can intervene with the Huns. He goes and visits them. Uh, kind of strikes up like a friendship 
with Attila, brings Attila back to Rome, and he he just kind of lives in Rome for a little bit, learns about the Romans. Sarah, am I leaving stuff out because I feel like I really am? I don't feel like you're leaving out anything important. I think uh, yeah. Galen, Galen might be the only other person oh, yeah. to really mention here. Yeah, so Galen is like a like a witch, a soothsayer, I guess, who um seems to not age at all and has a a, a bunch of visions of Attila's future. Uh so so she is one of the Huns and keeps passing on these these uh like visions of his like rising to power, his, you know, succeeding in battle, his finding a very special sword that was uh, uh belongs to their war god, I believe. And so he's kind of following her sort of guidance based on these uh, visions and uh, gets kind of frustrated with him after a while. And I, at the end, she dies at, at the end of part one. Is that right? Cause yeah, he, she it, like... Yeah, because he's in a trial by combat with his brother. And he keeps getting hit with arrows, and somehow the pain from that transfers to Galen, and she dies, and he doesn't. And then he yells at her grave and finds the special sword. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I have no reason to believe that part wasn't entirely historically accurate. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, so I think I think part one ends basically with like Attila kill Attila wins. Bleda dies, Galen dies, and now there's also like there's this uh this girl who was captured in one of their village raids that Attila oh, was like yeah. really it, he was like it was like love at first sight because she tried to kill him, but Bleda saw that and she had red hair. Yeah, red hair. Yeah, that was a really important like fetish for him. Yeah, yeah they really made a thing of that. Mm-hmm. But. Bleda doesn't like Attila, and so he claims the girl for himself, basically out of spite. But now that Bleda is dead, uh, Attila is free to marry this girl. And part two, I think, if I'm remembering right, part two starts with her dying in childbirth, basically. Um, So she's given him a son, but now she's dead. He's very sad, and he goes and, yeah, he goes and yells at Galen's grave and finds the sword just barely beneath the surface of the ground mm-hmm. like he just like scoots out like two inches of mud and there it is but uh never mind that um so he's got the sword uh he unites all these hunnic tribes as well as some other like tribes from all over europe uh the king of the Finns is there mystifyingly paying tribute to mm-hmm. attila um <laughs> but uh he is getting ready to march on Constantinople. Meanwhile, back at Rome, Flavius Edius is trying to deal with the situation and is going to go to Constantinople to talk to Theodosius about how to handle this. And he's taking the Western Roman princess, Honoria, with him because she has been disgraced having an affair with her steward and plotting to overthrow her brother, the Emperor Valentinian. So she's been exiled to Constantinople. They surprise her by sending her to a convent. (laughs) Uh, And so she's panicking. She's freaking out. And she ends up writing a letter to Attila, who she knew back in Rome or in Ravenna. And she says, like, I, I will marry you if you get me out of here. Here's my ring. So, you know, it's really me sending this letter. And like, meanwhile, Edius's ability to deal with this has like just not worked. He's tried to talk to Attila, um, and things have not gone well. And so for Attila, this letter from Honoria is a great pretext to invade the Western Empire. Edius also has a backup plan because when he was at Theodosius's court, there was this slave girl named Ildico, who looks shockingly like the um wife who died in childbirth at the beginning of this part two the only difference being her hair color. <laughs> and uh, she she is a slave because her uh, village was destroyed by the Huns. So Aetius says, I have an opportunity for you to get revenge against the Huns. How would you like to seduce the king? <laughs> and he dyes her hair red, and she hangs out as like a one of the camp women, one of the slaves in Attila's um, 
settlement until he notices her, basically. And then they get engaged. Meanwhile, Attila is uh, invading the Roman Empire and uh, marching through Gaul on his way to Rome. He fights this battle at the city of Orléans where Aetius has said they will probably go. He knocks down a wall by very cleverly figuring out where the weak spot is, so they win the battle. At this point, I honestly zoned out a little bit, because things were getting weird. (laughs) (laughs) But there is is one more battle where Aetius has um, teamed up with the Visigoths, even though the king of the Visigoths, Theodoric, is like his personal enemy because Aetius stole Theodoric's wife and infant daughter and like raised the daughter as his own. Um, so he's forced to give the daughter back to this biological father that she has never known. So that's very awful and sad for her. Um, but Aetius and Theodoric and the Visigoths are fighting against Attila and his Huns at this Battle of Shalon. And Theodoric is killed, sort of by his own side, uh, and it's made to look like it was a just an accident of battle. Nobody really wins, but nobody really loses either. Uh, you know, they both pretty much hold their own ground, but there are so many casualties that neither of them can afford to attack again. So they're like, well, we'll go home. We'll wait out the winter. We'll try again next spring. Uh, he goes home and marries Ildico. Uh, who has been waiting for this moment to take her revenge. She puts some poison into Attila's wine when they have one last toast on their wedding night, uh, which he immediately like chokes on and dies. Um, and so then she is discovered with his body the next morning. Uh, Attila's right-hand man promptly executes her. They have a big dramatic funeral for Attila, and then the movie ends by telling us we are now entering the Dark Ages. Uh, and I just I just want to say, I, I didn't take a lot of notes on part two, but the last note I have in my notebook is literally, the Dark Ages? Fuck you. <laughs> That's a terrible term. If you are someone out there who's using that term, stop. <laughs> um, and that's Attila. <laughs> yeah. Um, what a wild flick. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. <laughs> So, uh, you said you watched this on Stars. Yeah. I have never heard of Stars except from your podcast, so I know yeah. you're using that. I found this on uh, YouTube under the name Hollywood Action Movies 2016 English Adventure Movies 2016 Hollywood New War Movies 2016. <laughs> That's when I watched it. <laughs> I was a little worried it wasn't the right one, and I was watching, and like, you have you know the intro with... Attila as a child, and then it cuts to the Roman Empire, and we have Emperor Buster Bluth using how to <laughs> learning how to use a bow and arrow indoors, yes. really comically. And I'm like, this can't be the right movie. This has to be some sort of parody of the movie. <laughs> Sadly, it's not. <laughs> I uh, what I love is how accurate this movie is in depicting um, the Huns as just Scottish people. Mm. Yeah, because ev- yeah. every actor playing the Huns is, is a Scot, uh, yeah. and they don't make an attempt with accents. It's it's book wild. <laughs> yeah, as uh, you may know, if you if you listen to Grease Lightning, you know that we are all for actors just using their real accents, and you know mm-hmm. historical accuracy be damned. We can have Scottish Huns, um, but what really gets me is that at least for Gerard Butler, he is trying to not sound Scottish. And every time he gets agitated, he fails completely at not <laughs> mm-hmm. sounding Scottish. He just like, it's it's barely in check the entire time. Like it would be better to just use your voice, dude. Let's let it go. Yeah, let yeah. us forget about it, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was kind of hoping uh, Ross would be here for this episode so I could ask him about uh, where that accent is from specifically. Ross is from Scotland. Yeah, so. I see, I was really excited to see how it was for him just seeing the the robust Scottish representation. <laughs> yeah. I know that, I think Gerard Butler is from Paisley, but I don't know really what that means for accents. Yeah. I All I know is that the guy who played Bleda is from Glasgow. And right. that, that's it. <laughs> uh, 
Well, after we uh, summarize the movie, we typically like to start by nitpicking all of the historical inaccuracies. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can do this as pedantically as possible to start with and then sort of uh, flow into larger discussions about uh, the rest of the film. Uh, As I said, I don't know anything about this time period. Uh, I like to turn to IMDB, uh, to their factual errors and Mm -hmm. goofs section, so I can see that things like the Roman uniforms are from the wrong period, stuff like that. Is there anything that stood out to you as uh, factually inaccurate? Trebuchets. Uh, This (laughs) this infuriated me uh, on a level that it shouldn't. The the Huns are, are shown to be using, like, trebuchets, and and I will preface this by saying I, I did kind of a deeper dive into figuring out, like, you know, the time periods for all of this. And the the terminology for siege engines makes zero sense and is deeply confusing. So there are catapults and there are trebuchets, but mm. they're also not called those things. Because catapults, I think, is a term for, like, the machine. But the actual item was called an, an onager for reasons. And then hmm. with trebuchets, there are two types. There's a traction trebuchet, which is called a mangonelle. I don't know why. And then there's the counterweight trebuchet, which is the one we all think of. So they're using counterweight trebuchets, which is the one where, you know, it's got a heavy thing on the end that, that pulls it down. Those wouldn't be used in Europe for like 600 fucking years. <laughs> and, and so it yeah, is okay, absolutely very wrong. <laughs> it's so so baffling to me. Uh, when when catapults are right there, we all know catapults. We know they would have mm. used them. It's it's right there. They're also easier to build. So I don't really mm. know why the production would go through all the work of building a stupid counterweight trebuchet uh, when they could have just done a stupid catapult. But maybe they just had one laying around. They do call them catapults in the movie. They don't call them trebuchets. Oh, and you think I didn't clock that too? Because <laughs> I was like, these aren't fucking catapults. What is wrong with you? It's, and it's, uh, now is some of it because I may have put over a thousand hours into the video game Total War Attila, which did not influence my choice of movie. Uh, perhaps. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, the thing that really gets me, um, I'm sorry, I'm going back to the casting choices for this movie just for a minute. I just want to read you an ancient description of Attila, and you can decide Mm -hmm. whether you think the six foot two, (laughs) totally built and gorgeous Gerard Butler was the correct casting choice for this. Uh, So this is from um, a historian named... Jordanes, um, and he was writing about a hundred years after Attila's death, but he's using, he's pulling very heavily from sources, including a guy who actually met Attila and wrote an account of his time in Attila's court. So this is probably about as accurate as it gets, um, for, you know, something at this historical distance. The game of telephone in this case is pretty short between, uh, sources. So this is the description of Attila. He was short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head. His eyes were small, his beard thin and sprinkled with gray, and he had a flat nose and a swarthy complexion showing the evidences of his origin, which I think that is basically uh, an ancient Roman way of saying he looked like Eurasian, basically. Like, to someone growing up in the Western Empire, he has some features that mark him as maybe being from Western Asia as opposed to, like, from Gaul or Spain or something like that. Mm -hmm. So he's just a little guy uh, (laughs) with, like, a a little bitty beard. Yeah, I mean, I gotta tell you, you read read that to a sketch artist, and you're getting a drawing of Gerard Butler. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just... It's it's baffling to me, but there there are a lot of places in this show where they sort of they take historical holes and historical you know rumors and they just sort of run with them and fill them in in just sort of however they however they want to. Um, so 
the the Huns had an oral tradition. So we don't have mm-hmm. anything written down from them, from their perspective about their own history and religion and things like that. So we don't really know very much about Hunnic religion. The sword being the the sword of Mars comes from a Roman source, and it's hard to know whether it was meant as just like this is a a sword of war because I'm a, I'm the conquering hero Attila, or if they're you know and or if the like the Roman guy is just interpreting. Um, some sort of religious element into that or not. So there's sort of some questions there. There's one source. I think Jordanes is the one who sort of implies that Attila might have killed Bleda, but they ruled together for 11 years before Bleda died. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't actually know. We have no evidence whatsoever for how Bleda died. We just know that Mm -hmm. he did. So the whole trial by combat thing is sort of invented Galen's visions and like her position in society as the as the prophet are invented. The stuff, all the if stuff. He was a real about, person. Maybe. Um. I mean, I there's no historical record of somebody like that. Oh. Okay. So I think they, I think they sort of invented her. Right. But yeah, that everything about the the Hunnic religion and interac- interaction with the supernatural, as far as I know, is just sort of like they took tiny little pieces of potential uh evidence and just sort of <laughs> ran with them um the mm. the stuff about honoria sending her ring and an appeal to help for attila that's real but mm. we don't think she was actually sent to a convent in constantinople uh it seems like she was in italy and she didn't propose marriage she was asking for his help in getting her out of a marriage and he needed an excuse to invade the Western Empire. So he interpreted this letter as a proposal and was like, yes, I accept. You are now my uh, fiancé, and here I come (laughs) to get you your share of the imperial power. (laughs) We're going to take Gaul for us. (laughs) Uh, You and me, Honoria. Uh, And And she's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Although it sounds like she maybe didn't protest too hard because she had been actually plotting against her brother Valentinian, and so this was a way for her to, like, share... The idea, I think, was to share power between like, Valentinian gets Italy and she and Attila get Gaul. But who knows about who knows about that? And Sam knows more about this than I do because Sam uh, did some research on Flavius Aetius, but he was never actually in prison. Like he he was sort of involved in a potential coup at one point, but he managed to sort of weasel his way out of punishment for that. It seems. Yeah. So so that was that was pretty wild. So um. Uh, so the the bit about him like being aware of like the Huns and their practices and stuff was actually true. So when he was pretty young, like maybe around like fifteen, he was a hostage uh, in the court of the Visigothic king. And after a while, he was kind of shipped off to the court of the Hun- Hunnic king. And so he stayed for like uh, uh, several years there, and then and kind of like gained some respect there, learned about their practices, and then just. Maybe at Attila that that may have happened. Uh, there's I couldn't find anything that that said definitively that he did. So he definitely had that background. And then in 423 uh, CE, the Western Roman Emperor died, and there was the uh, Eastern Roman Emperor's cousin Valentinian III, who they wanted on the throne. And then there was just this usurper, Joannes or John, I've also seen him called, who asked uh, Flavius Aetius to support him. And so Aetius assembled this force of Huns to go and and support Joannes's uh, claim for the throne. It took him a while to do that. Uh, so during that time, uh, the Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius II uh, organized a military force to put his uh, p- to put Valentinian on the throne. And so Aetius shows up in uh, in Western Roman Empire. So I guess Ravenna, uh, I assume. Yeah. And Jonas is dead. And uh, Valentinian is very much on the throne. And Aetius is firmly on his shit list. Uh, <laughs> however, uh, he had a sizable army of Huns that were just ra- raring to go. And so... 
Edius and Valentinian's mom, uh, Gala Placidia, uh, basically, like, worked out an agreement where he'll send the, the Huns home without, uh, killing anyone, and he'll get the, the role Magister Militum per Gallius, so the commander-in-chief of the Roman army in Gaul, and he just ran with it. So, so, like, he wasn't imprisoned, like the movie shows, but but there's definitely some uh, d- hard feelings. We'll put it that way. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. One of the one of the other interesting things I think about this movie is the. I mean, I guess it's it shouldn't be surprising because movies about ancient history love to to just do this. Um, the randomly inserted romances in this. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that upper class Huns practiced polygamy and we know that Attila had multiple wives. Mm-hmm. But why we need to have this one grand love of his life who was a like a hostage from a village raid and not somebody that um an elite of Attila's level would actually like be interested in marrying for you know for the um the optics of it and like the political mm-hmm. machinations that are weddings for the elite at this time um like that wouldn't have happened and just like the the romantic drama that's that's put in there um no evidence whatsoever for that also no confirmed evidence that ildico actually killed him it's true that he died on his wedding night to her but his death is just as likely sort of a, a freak accident um so from what we know of what was discovered the next the next day when they finally broke down the door because he wasn't answering, they found him lying there dead on the bed and Ildiko sitting next to him sobbing because she knew she was going to be in trouble <laughs> when they were mm-hmm. discovered and she didn't really know what to do. And so there obviously there were people who thought she may have poisoned him or something, but it seems like he choked on his own blood, basically. And this can happen when like blood vessels burst in your esophagus um this can happen sort of randomly but it also can be the result like the weakening of these blood vessels can be the result of like excessive alcohol consumption and so it's just as likely that basically attila drank himself to death and then died of like internal bleeding on his wedding Mm -hmm. night and this is a night where he would have been partying hard right so um The whole, like, Germanic slave girl out for revenge, seducing Attila and murdering him thing, um, by making herself look like his dead love, that whole plot line just really hurt (laughs) to watch. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like we need to vindicate Ildiko. She's probably innocent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she would have been better off being his wife than doing that, right? You'd have to have... Definitely, (laughs) definitely. Yeah. And if she wanted to murder him, doing it on the wedding night where she's the only one with him, right? That's... Yeah. No. You do it in a way where you can throw suspicion on other people. Mm -hmm. Well, she was asked earlier if she was willing to die to take out Attila, so she was... I guess that was just the plan all along. That's true. So, so Josh, you actually brought up the, uh, like, Roman military equipment and so mm-hmm. so i kind of looked into it because it it didn't feel right to me and it's like super wrong um <laughs> so like what we see is is like what you typically think of when you think of like roman legions but the idea of roman legions but like was kind of gone by this point so by like 400 CE, the Roman army it basically transitioned from like an expansionist army to a defensive one. So they they didn't require the same sorts of like usage that that the the equipment that they had before, and they also mostly had foreign soldiers at this point, um, and they would like federate basically captured uh, or you know like conquered peoples. So the, they were less like heavily armored, you know, foot soldiers. They also relied more on heavily armored cavalry, which I don't think we see at all in the movie. And like their foot soldiers adopted the equipment that was like 
previously basically used for their cavalry. So like round shields, longer swords, spears, and like mail armor rather uh, as opposed to like that segmented like plate armor that you see. And I, I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently uh, reenactors have found that segmented armor to be very uncomfortable and chafing. And so <laughs> it might be that like that's kind of why they phased it out, because otherwise it's like effective armor. But it might just be that it chafed too much. It doesn't yeah, sound which... right, but I don't know. Well, that would be distracting and, and it could also lead to infection too, right? True. Yeah. Yeah. So if it opened yeah, up no. your skin and Yeah, that's a solid point. They also didn't use the the pila anymore, so the the like so it's the spear with like the really um narrow metal tip and then the wooden kind of throwing shaft. They stopped using those and instead moved to um plumbate, which were like these iron or lead-weighted darts. And so they had roughly the same effect as pila but they were smaller and they could carry more of them and they had better range. So that that was kind of a lot of what the Roman army had shifted to. I, f I feel like there was something else I wanted to say about that, but I have since forgotten it. Well, one other big military thing is that this movie completely leaves out Attila's invasion of Italy. Like we oh, just, yeah, we skip that entirely. Like we just end with this battle in Gaul. And that's the end of his story, according to the show. Yeah, and and they're like, yeah, he they had this battle in Gaul, and then he went home and beefed it, which is not true. <laughs> he waited a year, and he came back, and he uh, tore his way through Italy, uh, in a in a big way. Mm. It, like Edius couldn't really stop him. Uh, didn't necessarily have the forces, and so he like. Was sacking cities left and right. He uh, leveled Aquileia. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And then he made but it he all the way. Rome, right? No, he did not. So he got pretty close. So he made it to the River Po, uh, mm -hmm. where he was stopped by like uh, a, a group that included the Pope, who yeah. basically was like, hey, <laughs> do you want to stop, please? And. <laughs> due to like a, a a number of factors including like Attila's force didn't have a lot of supplies they probably were uh, dealing with a lot of like diseases and because the bulk of their forces had left kind of their their home territory they were facing attacks on their home territory and so they they did uh, turn around and leave and he accomplished kind of nothing <laughs> yeah in some ways attila is uh sort of like a always a bridesmaid never a bride of conquerors <laughs> um because he like okay so the huns were unified cool he invades a bunch of territory uh and he does actually like rule over a very very large geographical area in eastern europe uh, a little bit of Western Asia, and then like he's moving into Germany and Gaul. But he like he never takes Constantinople. He tries and fails to take Rome. Like multiple times in his life, he gets very close to doing something big, and doesn't. <laughs> he just mm -hmm. like he cannot quite get there. Um, and I think that was probably super, super frustrating for him. And maybe one of the reasons he decided after Italy, all right, I'll just go home and get married. <laughs> and we'll get another wife and we'll try again later. <laughs> but, but yeah, he never did take Rome. Um, and some of the ancient sources, now these guys can't entirely be trusted, right? Because um, they're Romans for one thing. So they have a certain perspective on the Huns. They're also uh, Christians, and because Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire at this point, and the Huns are not Christians. Um, a lot of German tribes were Aryan Christians. And so they were at least, you know, there were a lot of sectarian conflicts, but at least they agreed on Jesus, basically. The Huns were not Christian. And so um, there's like a, a bigger conflict there for these Roman authors um, in writing about like, quote unquote, godless barbarian heathens, whatever. 
So one of the reasons that's given in some of these sources for the other than like, I mean, there were real reasons for him to turn around, right? Like Sam said, one of the reasons that's given is basically superstition because like maybe the Pope manages to scare him a little bit. Um, but there's also mm. this, this fact that Rome, Rome had been sacked before in the year 410, um, a German chieftain named Alaric sacked Rome and very shortly after he died. And so the sources say that people were reminding Attila of this. Like, remember, Alaric took Rome and then he died. So, like, don't do that. <laughs> and so there's, like, there's some speculation that maybe basically Attila was superstitious. And that's why he turned around. He mm -hmm. still died very soon after. So I don't mm -hmm. know what we're supposed to make of that. But <laughs> Well, if you get it too close, you'll you'll kick it, too. <laughs> that must be it. <laughs> I... I did find an, an interesting uh, fact about uh, Aetius, if y'all would like to, to hear it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So uh, there's a period of time where basically he became like the most important guy uh, in the Western Roman Empire. He, he was essentially leading it uh, because he held so much sway over Valentinian. And there was this uprising of Burgundians in Gaul. And he sent uh huns to put it down and they apparently did so in quite a merciless fashion i believe destroyed the town of of worms and the destruction of that inspired the the nibelungen lead which is a german epic poem that was written in 1200 which inspired wagner's der ring des nibelungens uh which i'm fairly certain was a big inspiration for lord of the rings so, wow. if we didn't have Flavius Aetius, we would not have Lord of the Rings. Oh my oh, god! Wow. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. It is very amazing. <laughs> Humans, man. It's crazy. I know. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> um, can I ask you, how are we supposed to feel about Attila in this movie? Because he's ostensibly the protagonist and i know that like the historical sources are all written by his enemies so he's always painted as uh the scourge of uh europe of the roman empire or whatever he was the scourge of but he's the protagonist whenever we see him we like it seems like we're supposed to feel sympathetic towards him he's always good directly to people right he mm -hmm. makes a point about how the romans are deceitful but he has more honor because he'll just attack directly and just murder everybody face to face <laughs> um but like as you said we have this these romance subplots where the background is that he's has like half a dozen polygamist wives he very clearly always has a favorite wife and a favorite child amongst his children. There's a scene where he's talking to one of his wives and he's like, where's my son? And she's like, you have like a dozen sons. And he's like, mm -hmm. you know which one I mean. There's only one that matters, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I mean, every time, like when we see him in the peaceful scenes talking to people, he seems like a great guy. But then it cuts to him just sacking a, a, an innocent farming village and just slicing up farmers. And I, I felt like the tone was a little confusing. Like, is he supposed to be the hero or like, what are we supposed to feel about him? Yeah. I got the idea that we, we were supposed to assume that he was doing what he had to do, but was really a, a nice guy deep down was what I got. Mm. It. Mm. Yeah. Like a, <clears throat> like a fedora wearing nice guy. Yeah. Cause like, <laughs> even when the, when the um, slave girl was marrying him and she was set out to kill him, the guy was like, make sure that you don't fall in love with him, right? Because, like, all the women fall in love with him. And so you have to keep your hate going or else you're not going to kill him. Mm -hmm. So it was yeah. kind of this thing where, like, and she almost, she was close to, like, getting wooed by him, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Until he till he called her by his ex-wife's name. Yeah, mm. that'll do it. That was the yeah. slip up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that'll do it. I think you make a really good point there, Josh, so about the sort of um, the dueling perspectives on Attila. 
Um, and I think in, in some ways there's a little bit of that in the sources. So the, the source we have, the Roman guy who actually met Attila and like hung out in his court for a while is a guy named Priscus. And he was like part of this diplomatic embassy to Attila in 449. And it seems like Attila did present these sort of like dueling aspects of himself. Like he was apparently pretty humble amongst the Huns. Like they go to this big banquet at Attila's um, home and everything's being served on like gold and silver plate. Attila is eating everything out of a little wooden bowl and drinking out of a wooden cup. Like he doesn't actually use any of the finery. He's apparently very generous to his like his generals and his the his advisors and the people around him and like when you have a personal relationship with him he's very generous he did apparently have a favorite son it was his like youngest son um and they mm-hmm. say that in this banquet the kid comes in and is attila like like has him sitting on his lap and is like looking gazing at him like lovingly and he's clearly like so so um adoring of this one son turns out it's because there's like some prophecy that um after attila dies this kid will be the one to like carry his empire forward um so he's like very into this one kid and it's the youngest which is like not a typical attitude for um kings right they're usually focused on their older sons yeah so there are like all these like wonderful sort of you know aspects of attila's humility and his kindness but then he does things like he tells the Roman ambassador, I've already talked to one of you people. If you don't have anything new to say to me, GTFO of my territory. <laughs> uh, and like, he just doesn't care. He is, he like, his mood can turn on a dime and he gets super angry, gets these super dark moods. Um, yeah, just like brutally murdering and like mowing down villages, raising cities. It feels a little bit like some of the things we learn about Alexander the Great, who was like a super yeah. nice guy and very generous to his generals and a very um, understanding and liberal ruler, unless you crossed him. And then you and everyone you've ever loved died. <laughs> yeah. Genghis Khan was supposed to be somewhat similar too, right? Like well-loved and took care of everybody if you were on his side. Yeah. Is that is that right? Yeah. It kind of makes me wonder if these guys were actually like that uh or if this was like a trope of writing about conquering kings i don't know yeah it could be or it could be part of like a narcissistic complex too right like um the ability the on off switch Mm, yeah yeah so maybe some psychopathic tendencies yeah i also thought like it's kind of just a savvy mood to Mm. reward the people who support you and who perform well and it sort of motivates other people to continue supporting you because they see everybody else getting these lavish gifts Mm, yeah yeah but yeah are we supposed to like him i have no idea i don't i got the feeling that we were supposed to yeah yeah i mean the definitely the casting of gerard butler does not help yeah in terms (laughs) of like trying to dislike him Mm -hmm. yeah but but yeah i you do make a good point that it's like, oh, just gloss over the fact that he's like mowing down farmers, uh, and just think about his rippling abs, <laughs> yeah, and his tender eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was looking up something I can't remember what now the other day, and I um just like in and amongst my Google search was a Reddit post titled. Gerard Butler's abs destroyed the Roman Empire. And it was like some somebody's review of this miniseries, but like that was their title for it. <laughs> I feel like that's like not an inaccurate summation of this <laughs> movie's ultimate message. <laughs> See, I'm I'm curious uh what y'all thought of it. Whether we enjoyed it? Yeah. Yeah, I like I thought it was good. Um it's probably not something that I would have watched on my own. Well, mm-hmm. maybe, but I probably would have started it and then stopped it once, like, all the fighting started and it got boring. But mm-hmm. I like historical stuff and I didn't... Yeah, it was interesting. It was good. Entertaining mm-hmm. enough. The um, emperor, the Roman emperor, he was kind of funny in his little 
That was just how shitty he was. It was kind of comic mm-hmm. relief a bit. <laughs> yeah, the Roman Emperor, I like the, in general, but the Roman Emperor kind of, especially at the beginning, threw me out of it a little bit because, like, I understand this Roman Emperor, was this an emperor that, like, became emperor as, like, a child at a very young age? Is that one of them? I, I believe so, yeah. yeah. I think so, yeah. So I I feel like maybe what they were going for is that when he became emperor as a child, he was unfit to rule. But this guy was like 35. (laughs) Like, he's acting like a child. uh, But like, if you were raised from six years old to be the emperor, by the time you're 35, you're not going to be an unfit child emperor. You're going to be like your life has been dedicated to being emperor. So I don't know. Is there any historical basis for this emperor being sort of incompetent and childlike? I I don't know how he compared to other emperors, but apparently amongst his own family, he was the dumb one. Uh, and like, un- like Honoria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so like, this is part of why Honoria ended up plotting against him because she was way smarter than him, way more politically savvy. And she knew it. And she knew that she would do a better job than Valentinian mm. was doing at running things. And so like, it was just very frustrating to watch, apparently. But I don't think he was as bumbling and immature and incompetent as some of the other Roman emperors like this. That that depiction of him, like, trying to learn how to shoot a bow, you know, and being so pitiful <laughs> and, and shooting relying on mommy's advice for everything, like, everything, yeah, yeah everything about that, um, it, it did feel like the perfect encapsulation of, like, some of the Roman emperors of this time period who were just, like, everything was falling apart <laughs> and they were a little incompetent, um, not really prepared didn't necessarily have the the resources anymore to actually rule with um with anything like decisiveness and so they're just sort of like resting on the laurels of their family name and mm. um enjoying being rich i don't i don't know how accurate it is for valentinian the 3rd but um for some roman emperors yeah, that that sort of bumbling uh, nature does seem to be a thing that happened. <laughs> hmm. I, I'll say from from the research I did, the like lack of political savvy is like sort of uh, supported because after a while he, you know, kind of soured on on Adius and how much power he had. And so he, a powerful senator and a eunuch. Uh, all kind of conspired together to kill Adius. And so uh, Valentinian did actually uh, stab Adius to death in 454. But it was a pretty stupid choice because everyone liked Adius. Like a lot. He was very popular. Mm. And so within like a year that the powerful senator who helped Valentinian like plot it, uh, I believe had him murdered. And then took over as emperor. Yeah. So. <laughs> One of the things that it did impress me about this movie was, you know, I probably read like a dozen Wikipedia pages as I was watching, like checking out every new character. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the characters in the movie are real people in history. And more or less, the things that happen in the movie did happen in history. So, um, like you say, Flavius did kill Aetius by stabbing him, uh, which sounds very much like that should be a made-up thing Mm -hmm. the um you know the battles might be out of order and there might be a whole bunch of things missing but uh there's the mythology that attila found this sword buried shallowly in the ground (laughs) i mean i don't think that event is real but the mythology is real uh the fact that he died in his sleep at his wedding was real like all of this stuff it seemed like there was a lot of room for hollywood to change the narrative yeah because uh, one of the things we talk about when we are doing like true stories from history is that as a writer you have this problem where you can't create a narrative because the narrative already exists and real life doesn't follow a nice you know screenplay uh, mm-hmm. structure so you you tend to have to change a lot of things to to get that that story arc to fit and uh so i guess um 
it's probably again just because I have no idea. I have no concept of the history of this period, so it's hard for me to criticize it. But I was more impressed that as I looked up these things, I realized that they were really based on real events and real people to a greater extent than I was expecting. So uh, in that regard, I I thought it was pretty good. Of course, apart from Galen, who seems to be an entirely fictional character, uh, telepathically taking on all of uh, <laughs> Attila's injuries and dying in his place, that was a little bit far-fetched, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> I And I'll tell you, like, doing the, the research that I did in, in preparing for this, I I also was, was pretty impressed about, like, how much they mostly got right about like the characters and events like even the the battle at the end so at at shalon or uh, it's also called the battle of the catalonian plains like the Mm. the way that played out was pretty accurate in terms of like they both suffered a lot of losses it was pretty much a stalemate the romans just said we won and then they all just went home uh, and and Theodoric yeah. did die. I I don't think he was murdered by a Roman like dipshit. I I don't know <laughs> his actual position, but some sort of like patsy. Yeah. Um, but but he did die, and Adius did tell his sons like, "Hey, you should head back and go deal with like the succession crisis now." Yeah. Uh, and then he he dipped and went back to, I guess Ravenna. Yeah, this is uh this is one of those things I think this really speaks to um the sort of chaotic nature of this time period of the late Roman the late Western Empire and the charisma of Attila in his in his own personage that you know they they added in some romance which is weird they mm-hmm. added in this like interpersonal drama with Aetius and Theodoric that there's no historical basis for. So they like added in some interpersonal things. But like you said, Josh, most of the story is actually based in the historical record. And I think that I do think that speaks to the just like totally bonkers nature of the political landscape at this time <laughs> that you didn't need to invent a bunch of drama to make this an interesting story and like a, a plot that sort of works uh, because it really just was that crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> and like everything going wrong for the Romans, you know, um, like it, that's just actually what was happening at this time. <laughs> One of the things that, uh, surprised me because again i have no idea i have i have no concept of this time period on and of attila the hun before watching this movie so literally like everything i know about attila i've learned from watching this movie at this point <laughs> but as uh we said we had to disambiguate attila from genghis khan and i guess in the public imagination there's a lot of overlap between these characters so i was expecting this was taking place further east uh, and I was surprised to see yeah, that th- most of this Hun's territory was in Central and Eastern Europe. Like we're we're fighting in Gaul. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that this went so far. And uh, looking at the map of uh, the Hun's range on uh, Wikipedia, it's centered on a part of the world where I actually work, which was very interesting to me uh, because I work in uh, Serbia and oh. uh, the Danube crosses Serbia. So the northern uh, province of Serbia uh-huh. is uh, uh, Pannonia. This is the the Pannonian Plain, which is where uh, a lot of this is centered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't mention specifically uh, these cities in the movie, but um, according to Wikipedia, when the Huns crossed the Danube into the uh, Eastern Roman Empire, they were attacking cities just over the Danube, including Viminatium and uh, Sirmium and Singidunum. And I've been to all these sites in Serbia. Oh, wow. Of course... I've been to tons of Roman sites in Serbia as an archaeologist working in Serbia, but I have no concept of Roman archaeology, so I don't have any context for what I'm looking at when I go to these sites. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so this provided me some good context. Um, Singidunum is now Belgrade, uh, so there's no real archaeological site. There's just Roman ruins underneath the entire city. Mm. Uh, Sirmium is now Sremska Mitrovica, uh, which is uh, a small city 
west of Belgrade along the Danube. But then Viminatium is really interesting. Have you guys heard of Viminatium? I'm not sure. This is an interesting Roman site. It was a Roman city. It was like a, a city built around a military base along the Danube, uh, a little bit east of Belgrade. And there is no current city at this site, which is a little unusual because so many of the Roman cities, uh, you know, have current cities on top of them. <laughs> and this one was like entirely lost. And as far as I understand it, there's a coal power plant within view of this archaeological site. My understanding is that there's a huge coal vein there and they discovered this city by excavating coal. Uh, and I, I think there's like... Um, some sort of legal block on mining coal for 50 years or something like this while they excavate this site. Mm. And it's an entire city. I've been there several times and uh, s most people around the world haven't heard of it, but Serbia is trying to do a pretty good job of uh, advertising this for tourism. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've excavated, you know, baths, they've excavated a necropolis. There's, um, a uh, auditorium that they've reconstructed. Uh, so they've built this wooden auditorium over top of the stone foundations where now they host events. Oh, wow. They've built a, a large interpretive center in the style of an ancient Roman villa. So they have labs there where the archaeologists actually work. They live at this Roman villa while they're working on the site. And I believe they have sort of like hotel rooms for uh, special events where guests can actually stay. Hmm. Uh, so if for some reason you end up in Serbia and you're like, I have no idea what's in Serbia. I've never heard of it. There's great Roman, <laughs> Roman sites that you can visit, including Viminatium, which I definitely recommend. But it was very awesome. interesting for me to know that Attila the Hun has had sacked Viminatium, which apart from these two random events in my life connecting, the fact that I happen to have been there and the fact that I now watch this movie, I can connect those and feel like, oh, wow, I was actually in this place where Attila the Hun, uh, you know, attacked one of these cities. It's pretty cool uh, to know that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah the Danube was sort of a um, a military border for a lot of the later Roman imperial period. Um, when When emperors tried to cross the Danube and continue annexing territory on the far side, things tended not to go well for them. <laughs> and so they were sort of like crisscrossing the Danube periodically throughout this, um, throughout these like first four or five centuries, um, CE. Uh, and so there's, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of military outposts, lots and lots of, um, garrisons, um, along the Danube. Um, I, I got to visit one in Hungary and now I can't remember what it's called. Um, but it's like, a 20 minute train ride outside of Budapest. There's another, um, a Roman, um, former Roman garrison that you can walk around the site. I'm definitely putting Viminatium on my travel list. That's amazing. There's, there's just nothing like mm -hmm. walking around a, um, an ancient city like that, that doesn't have a modern one on top of it. Um, Ostia in Italy is like mm -hmm. this, where you could just sort of walk around the town and, um, really get a feel for what it was like. It's just absolutely incredible. Yeah, the, it, it, it really is, I think, for further west, like these Huns, Attila's Huns, I think um, a lot of people are surprised to learn that they were like this far west and that this was their territory. Apparently in the, I think it was in the 19th century, there was a guy who um, had a had a theory that Attila's Huns were related to the... Um, what we typically think of as Huns, the Zhongno people who raided Chinese borderlands throughout various periods in history. Oh, see, I thought they were the same. It seems like, so there's, I think there's some controversy. Like for a while that was accepted and now it's like, maybe not. It might just be like two different nomadic peoples called Huns. Uh, but it feels like you would have to have some kind of connection right, to get that name for both. I think that's why I thought it was so much farther east was because of Mulan. Like I thought right. that was Attila in the in Mulan, the bad mm. guy, right? Hmm. Yeah. It's it's not him. But I, mm. I think there's gotta be some sort of like cultural connection there. Um but it's it's unclear to me what that connection is. Yeah, because when I was doing research on like Hunnic like military practices and equipment and stuff, there there were a few things like sword development and stuff like that that 
basically they had gotten from China and that kind of as those practices moved west, they they changed. So like I, I believe it originally, something along the lines of like originally like they sort of took this like Chinese short sword and as they moved west, it became longer and longer uh, and basically introduced like a longer sword to <clears throat> to Europe, I think. And I the like composite bow that they used, I think, also had Chinese influences. And there was a lot of stuff about Sarmatians, which I I don't actually know where that fits in geographically. But I I am yeah. but a humble public health person in Arkansas, so I'm I'm pretty far afield <laughs> of what I do. <laughs> there, yeah, it's it's one of those things where you know it, we don't have great historical records uh for any of these people so it's hard to say anything for sure but mm. i don't i don't think the connection is something to be totally dismissed um partly because of these uh these connections that you've both just mentioned and also partly because like i don't think it's unreasonable for uh you know these were nomadic people so the idea that they started you know further east into asia and then over time made their way into the West is not unreasonable at all. I don't think um, the, the Hunnic invasions of Gothic territory started in the three seventies, more or less three fifties, three seventies CE with Attila. Mostly we're talking about around four fifty. So the, you know, the Huns have been gradually moving West and, and conquering more and more territory for a hundred years by the time we get Attila knocking at the gates of Rome. So it's a, it's a long mm. and slow process. Mm. Trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to say about this flick. We've covered a lot of information here. I personally just wanted more Tim Curry. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I saw Tim Curry on the, on the INDB list before we watched. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great, but he's only got a couple of scenes. Yeah. I mean, he chews up that scenery while he's there, but it's, it needs more. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. You have a particular way you, that you rate movies on your mm. show. Do you have a rating prepared for this one? Oh, um, hmm. I've got one, Sam. Okay, yeah. If you need to think. Yeah. I'm going to give this uh, three out of five Honoria rings. Ooh, okay. It gets a lot of things right, but <laughs> damn, it's long and I got bored. <laughs> It is long. I think you'd have to watch it as yeah. two separate shows, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I made the mistake of watching it all straight through. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. I will give this six and a half out of ten swords buried two inches in the mud. <laughs> nice, nice. nice. <laughs> I was thinking I would give it three out of five polygamist wives. Very nice. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> oh. I'd probably give it three out of five um, thin beards with with gray. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so this is a solid D minus across the board. <laughs> First screens of the Stone Age and Grease Lightning. <laughs> That's uh, much better than most of the movies we watch, though. Most of the movies we watch get like threes and fours on IMDb. Oof, <laughs> yes. That's brutal. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, some of them are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh well where can our listeners find you guys yeah so i mean we're we're on all major like podcast hubs so it's uh greased lightning uh g-r-e-e-c-e-d uh like the country uh we're also on facebook at greased lightning podcast you can find us on instagram at greased lightning pod uh we have an email address if you have some thoughts so that's greased lightning pod at gmail.com I don't mention it much, but it's actually how, how you found us, Josh. Uh, we are on Reddit, and I think it's just Greased Lightning uh, is, is our profile on there. And so we, we we post in the podcasting subreddit. But yeah, that's that's pretty much the, the high points. Yeah, I never mention it because we don't have a Reddit account. I just post uh, the podcast to the podcasting subreddits from my personal account, which I probably shouldn't do. And I probably shouldn't mention that on the air because now if somebody Googles screens of the Stone Age, they're going to know my personal Reddit account. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, 
I was very careful about not crossing those streams. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you want your personal... Reddit's anonymous, so you typically don't really uh, want it associated with your real name. But my, my account's pre- pretty clean. I really only post anthropology and archaeology and uh, bone identification subreddits. Mm-hmm. And also lots of Bigfoot stuff in the past. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, nothing, uh, nothing that's going to be a problem for me. So we don't have that many listeners. If people want to f- try and find me on Reddit and dox me, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I will uh, recommend your show to all of our listeners because I've been listening to it a lot. Like I said, I know nothing about ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, It's very interesting being able to tie it to a movie, uh, which is the same concept that I had for our podcast. So uh, I think it's a great idea to discuss ancient history by tying it to popular culture. It makes it a lot more accessible and it's definitely working for me for your show so definitely check out grease lightning i also love that we both have pun names for our podcast <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's awesome and uh yeah we we just wrapped up our first season mm-hmm. but uh season two will be coming at an undisclosed time but um yes we're planning so we've got our we've got our movie list so uh yeah i guess stay tuned for that very cool in the meantime, you got a l- large enough back catalog to last for a little while until you get to season two. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and thank you so much for having us. It's it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, this was a blast. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, come back anytime if you want to teach us more about ancient Greece or Rome. Yeah, no. definitely. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be careful with that because because <laughs> we we would take you up on it. Yeah. <laughs> As you can tell, we like to talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been enjoying Screens of the Stone Age, get in touch with us. Follow us on Twitter at SOTSA underscore podcast and on Facebook at SOTSA podcast. Or send us an email to screensofthestoneage at gmail.com. Screens of the Stone Age is supported by the Paleoanthropological Society of Canada. Find out more at pasc-scpa.ca.